Good morning, Christ Bible Church. Uh, So glad that you're here as we've uh, gathered together uh, to hear God's Word. This morning we are starting uh, the Book of Kings. Uh, As we start every series, uh, we make these available throughout the the time that we spend in each book. It's just a scripture journal uh, that has text on one side, empty pages to take notes on the other. This one is substantial because the book of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings uh, together, which is really one unified book, is a substantial book. Uh, And so grab it, keep it close, as you will need it for quite some time as we work through uh, the book of Kings. They're our gift to you if you're visiting and you're wondering, well, should I take it? I don't know if I like this guy. He looks kind of weird up there. Uh, Just take it. Uh, We want you to have it. We want to provide it for people. Uh, And we want to get God's word out to as many people as possible. And so if this is a resource that will help you as we work through the book of Kings, uh, feel free to grab it. There's some, uh, no more in the back, but there's a bunch in the hallway. uh, So you can go step right outside and grab one. Uh, Or if you're really brave and you need one, you can come take this one from me up here on the stage. But uh, I doubt any of you are that brave. That's okay. Uh, I'm personally very excited. Uh, Kings is one of my uh, favorite books in the entire Bible. Uh, It's one of those books uh, that captivated me uh, as a young child, as a young adult, and even as an adult now, uh, because it's dripping. It's dripping with anticipation. It's dripping with wonderful narrative. It's it's full of uh, stories that as a young child you read and your imagination goes wild like Elijah on the mountain calling down fire that consumes the offering. And as, as a young child, I've always uh, close my eyes and, and picture these different events as the narrative unfolds, uh, and it brings great excitement to me to think and see how God has worked throughout his people. And so we hope that you find great encouragement, uh, and, and if nothing more, that we hope that you see Jesus. As the whole book is an anticipation of the coming king, the king that Israel truly longs for, the king that Israel desires, the great king, Jesus Christ. And so we hope as we work through kings, first kings, second kings over the next while, uh, that you find encouragement not just in the way Israel is responding and working through God and how God is responding to his people, but ultimately that you see encouragement and find encouragement as you see Jesus throughout the pages of this book. Uh, And so let's start by just having a little bit of uh, background on uh, the book of Kings as we get started. First, uh, the book of Kings is a narrative. What do I mean by that? It seeks to tell a story. And it's a story that's a continuation of of the story found in Samuel. So 1st and 2nd Samuel end, and Kings picks up right with this sto- where that story ends, with David now at the very end of his reign, and we'll continue to see the stages and the kings of Israel play out, and the narrative that follows about God's people under the uh, different rulers that have been put in place over them. In a very brief overview for some of you who may not be familiar with the book of Samuel, so you kind of have the context of the narrative story that's taking place, uh, the book of Samuel follows three main people. You have Samuel, who is a prophet, and he's the final judge of Israel. Then you have Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And then you have David, who is the second king and the king that we see is after God's own heart. The people had rejected God as their king. First Samuel 8, 7, uh, they say, we don't want God. We don't want you as our king. We want a human ruler. Uh, And we see now as Samuel transitions into king, what's happening with the narrative is that the future of Israel, what state their land is in, their... uh, Everything that's going on in their lives is largely determined by the quality of their king rather than the excellence of their God. 
Kings is going to continue this same story as it looks at the different rulers of Israel and then Judah as the uh, uh, country breaks apart uh, and see what life under the rule of men rather than God brings the people of Israel. But the book is more than just narrative and telling a story. It's also telling history. It's a history book, and it's written to answer the question of its Jewish readers of how they ended up in the situation that they find themselves in. It's a story, yes, but it's also a history and a reminder uh, to the people of God of what faithful or faithless living brings about. There's three major themes throughout all of the book of Kings that we'll see play out repeatedly. One, it's the failure of earthly kings God had warned about when the people rejected God as their king. Two, we see the failure of the people of God who repeatedly turned to idolatry uh, and and turned to worshiping other gods. And three, we see in all of this the eternal, unfailing, faithful, covenant-fulfilling God who works through all of this in points one and two, the failure of earthly kings and the failure of the people of God to preserve his people and to fulfill the promises to David. Another major theme that's tied into this is David's royal line. God had promised uh, in 2 Samuel 7 uh, that David's dynasty, his royal line, would live forever, that he would have a king on the throne. Unlike Saul, the king who came right before David, the first king of Israel, uh, whose dynasty ends with him, David had a dynasty that had been promised to last forever. How would this happen? And through which son would David's royal line continue? This is indeed one of the pressing questions that Kings opens up with in the first two chapters of the book. Regarding when and by whom the book of Kings is written is a little bit more murky. There's competing views. Some argue uh, that there's one author for the entirety of the book of Kings. And by the book of Kings, I mean 1 Kings and 2 Kings, one unified book. Uh, so one author, some people argue this, uh, that's been, that was uh, composed around 550 BC after the conclusion of all of the events in the book. Others have argued that the book is compiled by various people over the centuries, meaning that there's different things happening and different people recording these events, and there's some kind of later editor that takes these stories and kind of splices them together. I don't find this second argument very convincing, that there's multiple authors as kings as a whole shows remarkable unity to be something that was written by multiple people. While we do not know who wrote the book, I find it highly unlikely, for example, that somebody different wrote 1 Kings 1 through 11 and somebody else wrote the end of 2 Kings. The tone of the text and the way the narrative is consistently shaped leads me to believe that the book is composed by one person who sought to recap the history of Israel's kings and how they ended up where they were when the book was written, again, most likely around 550 B.C., The book is a remarkable whole, a consistent narrative and history of the people of God as they deal with the repercussions of their rulers. With all that to say, though, the answer to the question of authorship, as we're sitting here, uh, should not change how we approach the reading. Whether you are convinced that there's multiple authors, if you read commentaries, or one author, uh, we can say that all of Kings is God's word, is without error, and has been given by God to his people for their good. Whether God delivered this book to his people through one hand or multiple hands does not change the meaning of the book. We believe the book is divinely inspired regardless. It's inerrant and it's inspired by God. We should not worry that if there was multiple authors or one author that this changes what Kings is about. It's also important for us to understand the context of Kings to keep us from imposing our modern world onto the text. 
The book was written for God's people in all of time, which means we can read it. God's preserved it. Here in 2023, we can read a book that's 2,700 years old, and it applies to us. It has meaning for us, but it is indeed received by God's people in a certain time, and this should be a lens that we use in order to see the narrative from this perspective. So what is this world that, that it's being written in? Well, the book is being received most likely by God's people who are questioning where their God is. Why would they do that? Well, in 550 BC, they find themselves in captivity. Why has God allowed his temple to be plundered and his people to be taken away from the land that he had promised to them as an inheritance? Does God indeed have power over these foreign rulers? If so, why has he not delivered his people? Why are they still in captivity? And why is the promise of a king and a nation seemingly on the brink of collapse? Did God not covenant with David to have an heir on the throne? Where is this heir now? Why should the people hope when all looks so hopeless for their future? These are the questions being asked by these Israelites when this book is being written. And yet the book of Kings will show repeatedly that when God's people live according to God's rule, they tend to prosper. But there's also a reminder on the flip side throughout the book that when a king who is opposed to God's design takes over, he usually leads not just himself into apostasy and in idolatry, but also uh, he leads the people into this same wayward and rebellious life. A nation goes astray as its ruler goes astray. What we see time and time again throughout the book of Kings is not a God who is only conditionally faithful, so when the people do the right things, God is faithful to them, but know what we see and what the author brings out uh, throughout the book is that the people of God have a God who is eternally faithful to a people who are anything but faithful to him in return. Throughout the book, we see that God is preserving a people that he has called to himself. God is being faithful to his covenants even when his people are faithless. This means that there is hope for God's people that find themselves in captivity. Their God is a God who is faithful to his promises and can restore his people as well as the Davidic line once again. And so with that little bit of background in mind, let's start reading the beginning of Kings together. Today we're going to tackle chapter 1, and we'll start by just reading the ten, uh, first 10 verses together here in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Now David was old. And he was advanced in his years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag the Shumanite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggiath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He confirmed with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah, and they helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shammai, and Rai, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatted, uh, fattened calf, cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogal. 
And he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all of the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we begin to look at the book of Kings. As we hear your word to your people, we thank you that you have indeed preserved it that you have provided for us a glimpse that the way that you operate, the way that you care for your people, the way that your sovereign hand brings all things to pass. And so, Father, we rejoice that we are indeed your people as we gather here today. We rejoice that unlike the kings in in this chapter, Lord, that you are the eternal king. You are a king who is not weak, a king who never tires, but a king who sits on a throne that will never end. And so, Father, we come before you, our great king, and ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds to convict us, to shape us, to mold us, that we might be your faithful servants, that we might live for you and according to your ways. Help us this morning. Teach us through your words. Let your spirit be at work in our hearts and our minds, that we might rightly understand your word to us this morning. Amen. Well, in chapter one, what do we have? We have a picture of three kings. We have the first king. He's a deteriorating and absentee king, King David, verses 1 through 4. Then we have the self-appointed king, Adonijah, in verses 5 through 10. And then later in the chapter, we will see there is a third king that arises. He is the sovereignly appointed king, King Solomon. And chapter 1 opens up with this picture of David. What does the picture look like? It's rather unflattering. And it's going to show us two points, I believe, right from the beginning that we should grasp that seeks to show us uh, human leaders and the outcome of human leaders. First, every human leader has weakness. Every single human leader has weakness. And second, a culture void of leadership will have something else fill that void. What do we mean by this in these first 10 verses? Well, the picture of David here is very strange if you're familiar with the book of Samuel. What does David look like in the book of Samuel? He's a powerful conquering king from a very young age when he's a a ruddy young man, when he defeats the great warrior Goliath to the end of his life when he's still providing victory over his enemies, when he pays the bridal price for his first wife uh, with with, uh, foreskin from the Philistines. He is victorious. He is a warrior. He takes decisive action, and he has victory after victory. Indeed, it seems almost that David is invincible. He is the great king of Israel and the king that we will see as we go through kings that all other kings are measured up to. But kings opens up not with this great flattering picture of the powerful conquering king David, but no, David in his royal bed, his body weakening. He's cold and he cannot get warm. Like my wife, no matter how many blankets he receives, he's still cold. Time after time, they try to warm him up, but it does not work. The picture is of a man that has seemingly given up. That famous fire and decisive action and attitude that we see throughout the book of Samuel is gone. David has no drive for life. And we will see it appears that he seems to be unconcerned about what's happening in his kingdom. So his advisors see David in this rather pathetic state, and they think, I know what will get him excited. He's always had an eye for the ladies. 
So we're going to go throughout the entire land of Israel, and we will find a beautiful young woman. This woman and her beauty will put some vitality back in the king. So she goes. They find this woman, probably the most beautiful woman they could find in all of the land, Abishag, and they bring her back. And yet what happens? She's his servant. Her presence is supposed to get David excited about life. There's a euphemism here that you should not miss. Uh, We get the picture being painted. But they find this woman. They bring her to the king. And what does it say in verse 4? The king knew her not. He couldn't even get up for this young, beautiful woman. We should not miss the significance here. Because in just a few verses, in verse 10, we're going to see another woman, Bathsheba, enter in the story. And Bathsheba, if you're familiar with Samuel, is a beautiful woman that David had gone through great trouble to be with, up to the point of having her husband killed. It's the low point in the entire David narrative of Samuel. But this David now that we see in 1 Kings simply has nothing left. Not even this beautiful young woman will get the king out of bed. He knows her not. Next verse, Adonijah takes the throne. One event leads to the other. David in his current state neglects his duties and thus gives opportunity for strife to enter into his house yet again. He's physically weak, but all around a weak ruler at the end of his life. And this reminds us that every human leader has weakness. Every human leader is limited and is unable to provide for the people all that they need. And we should read this about David, the great king, the king who was supposed to do so much for Israel and indeed did do so much for Israel, and yet at the end of his life, he can give them nothing. And in fact, he invites strife into his own household because of his weakness and his frailty. If we place our hope into humans, we will always be disappointed. Only one is eternal. There is only one who is unchanging. There is only one who will never get tired, Jesus. And the text here is subtly calling us to have faith in him rather than human rulers. But while David is weak, his son Adonijah is opportunistic. He has taken some military and a few important people along with every single one of his siblings except for Solomon Uh, He has a show of force, chariots, horses. They go outside the city to hold a coronation ceremony. Adonijah had several reasons to believe that what he was doing was the right course of action. The kingdom has been neglected. There's a void of leadership, and it's begging for somebody to fill it. Adonijah is the fourth oldest son of David, but he is the oldest son still alive, as David's oldest son, Amnon, and his third oldest, Absalom, die in 2 Samuel. David has another son, Uh, If you're familiar with Samuel, Kiliab, he's mentioned in 2 Samuel 3, never mentioned again. It's presumed that he's probably dead at this point in the story as well. And so Adonijah is the oldest and presumed heir to the throne. He's also the one who looks like a king. He's described the same way as his brother Absalom, who had also usurped the throne from his father. He's tall. He's beautiful. He has the symbols of kingship, chariots, horses, soldiers, willing servants, Further, the text tells us his father has never spoken out against his wishes, and thus he feels entitled to take decisive action and put himself in the seat of the king. He is someone that sees it as his calling to be king and provide for the people what his father no longer can. He will be strong, he will be decisive, he will provide leadership. What is happening here? Well, we see something. Same thing I mentioned earlier. 
a culture void of leadership will always have something fill that void. Adonijah had not been chosen by God, he had not been anointed by God, but he puts himself forward as God's chosen king. He did this while his father was still living, and his self-appointment should be seen as a form of treason. He has declared God's appointed and anointed king as king no longer, and put himself on the throne. But because David has become weak and neglectful in his role of leading the kingdom, his son has decided it's his calling and duty to fill this void. This story, this event should be of particular importance to those of us in here who are fathers and grandfathers, who have some type of authority in caring for those that are underneath us and providing shaping and leadership. But it also goes beyond that. All of us in here have areas and people in our lives that we have been uh, entrusted to provide for. Some type of guidance, some type of shaping, some type of molding. But why does Adonijah feel free to make this move? Because in all of his life, he has never been corrected by his father. He's never been rebuked. David has never said, do thus and so. David had dropped the ball with Adonijah, and now Adonijah feels empowered to make a decision that will set his life on a certain path of ruin and bring calamity on David's family. When we fail to use and uh, exert our God-given leadership, we invite something else to fill that void. But the story continues. Verse 11, Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggiath, has become king? And David our Lord does not know it. Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my Lord, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. The narrative in the story shifts away from Adonijah and his little party in the desert and brings into focus two characters from the book of Samuel, the prophet Nathan and David's wife Bathsheba. David is oblivious to what is going on, or if he does know, he simply does not care. These two, it appears, were not invited to Adonijah's coronation. The city had heard about the party going inside, outside the gates. Indeed, they could probably hear it, perhaps even see it, as the leaders of the army, David's sons besides Solomon, all gather for this coronation for Adonijah. But the situation is dire, for the life of Bathsheba and her son Solomon now hang in the balance. Adonijah will take decisive action as it has been seen through his self-appointment, and this decisive action will certainly include eliminating any potential threats to his throne. What do we see in this section of the text? Our actions or inactions never affect just ourselves. David's abandonment of his duties have resulted in a direct threat on the life of his wife and on his son. We should never buy into the lie that what we do privately won't have consequences in the world that is around us. Because David has refused to act, because he has neglected his duties, his wife and his son's life now hangs in the balance. So what do Nathan and Bathsheba do? They appeal to David's honor in verses 15 to 27. Bathsheba appeals to the promise of David. You said my son would sit on the throne. How could you let this happen? Do you not know that your non-action is a direct threat on our existence? As she finishes her plea before the king, Nathan comes in with his side of the count. 
He has faithfully served the king, along with Zadok, Benaniah, and even Solomon. And yet, they have not been rewarded for their faithful service. They have indeed been neglected. Is there no reward for them? Will the king not care for them as they have cared for the king all of these years? Further, the author is bringing in irony here to drive home a point. Why is Adonijah's mother's name mentioned? It's mentioned in verse 5. It's mentioned in verse 11. Haggiath. Indeed, in all of the Bible, it's only mentioned in two other places, 2 Samuel 3, 4 and 1 Chronicles 3, 2, where it simply says, Adonijah, the son of Haggiath. This is a woman who has no part of the entire narrative, and yet her name is given here. Ian Provon, an Old Testament scholar, notes that there's something interesting being played out here with the mother's name in direct contrast with Bathsheba. Her name, Haggiath, is derived from the Hebrew word meaning to feast. In a sense, the author is using a pun, meaning she is the daughter of the feast. Bathsheba, on the other hand, has a Hebrew name meaning daughter of the oath. And so you have two daughters, the daughter of the oath and the daughter of the feast, the mothers of the two rivals to the throne, and the narrator is casting them against each other to inject a type of predestination into the characters. The mothers are helping us to understand what is happening and who their sons actually are. Which one will succeed? Which is the one that God will use to establish his rule? How will David choose this case of his future royal line? Will it be through the daughter of the feast or through the daughter of the oath? But let's fast forward to verse 28 as we continue reading here in chapter 1. Again, this is after Bathsheba and Nathan go before the king. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gahan. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaniah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my king, even so may he be with Solomon." and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada went, uh, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gahon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. 
Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why does this uproar, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came in. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gahan, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took, ho took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told to Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first, that he will not put his servants to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. What is happening here? Well, what's the outcome of the appeals of the daughter of, of the oath and the prophet of the Lord? Their appeals do what the beautiful young woman could not. They move David one last time into decisive action as we see God's sovereign hand at work, establishing the kingdom promised to David and continuing to be faithful to the covenant that God had made with David to establish his throne forever. The kingdom would, con could, would continue through the daughter of the oath. This is a subtle encouragement here for the people of God who find themselves in captivity that their God is indeed the God who upholds oaths. He is faithful to his promises and covenants. One man had become king privately. He invites his own party, but his reign is over before the reception even finishes. The other is announced publicly. He's anointed. He is the king before the people as appointed by God. It is this man God has chosen, and it is through this man, King Solomon, that God will bring about the future king Israel longs for. What is the result of the coronation? The earth splits, meaning the rejoicing, the loudness, the joy, the shouts from the people is so great that it causes an earthquake. The reverberations reach the coronation party of Adonijah, which quickly disperses. I laugh every time here at the end of chapter 1, because if you look, you have in verse 5, this brass young man, Adonijah, who has the audacity to make himself king, who has all of the looks and all the things that appears would be needed to be king, but by the end of the chapter is trembling and in fear for his own life, clutching at the horns of the altar, begging for mercy. His rule is over before his party is even ends. 
Jonathan, the man whom he received in verse 42, by saying he was a worthy man who brings good news, indeed did bring good news for God's people, but horrible news for this pretend king. The sovereignly appointed king, King Solomon, has been instilled on the throne. The man through whom God would expand the kingdom, bring prosperity to the people of God, build the temple, and carry out his covenant with David. God was faithful to David, and he will establish his throne through his son, Solomon. The self-appointed king is revealed to be no king at all. He grovels for his life in front of this sovereignly appointed king, knowing that his life is not in his hands at all. He thought he could take power, but is revealed to be truly powerless. What does this mean as the chapter comes to a close? What is the point of all of this? I think the one overarching point we should get is that the schemes of man can never stop the plans of God. And indeed, I do think this is the one thing we should leave with as we bring chapter one to a close. The schemes of man can never stop the plans of God. God's people in captivity can rejoice as they read chapter one. Us as God's people here today can rejoice as we read this because we see that the schemes and the plans of man can never overcome and stop the plans of God. There is still hope for God's people because of their God. Nothing is going to stop him. Further, in this story, we should also begin to see all of the shades of Jesus. Kings opens up with David, the weak, the impotent king, deteriorating in the closet, unwilling, but certainly unable to lead the people. We read this story and our hearts cry out because we see this is no king at all. This is not a king who can provide for his people. And so we cry out for a king who will never grow weak, who will never be tired. The king who isn't impotent, but omnipotent, whose reign never comes to an end. The king that we see in scriptures as the one who will ultimately fulfill that covenant with David and give him a man on the throne forever, King Jesus. We should see the failure of David and run to Jesus knowing he will never fail us. When we see the image of Solomon riding in in the mule at the end of the chapter, we should be reminded that a better king also rode into the city of Jerusalem on a mule only to be coronated with a crown of thorns and would die as payment for the rebellion of his people. We should have confidence and hope facing this present day because we see in chapter one that we serve an unstoppable God and have an eternal king. No amount of scheming can ever stop God's plan. No earthly ruler has any power to oppose him. A few quick applications uh, to our lives as we say, how does this apply to us? Where do we go from here? The first question I want to ask you is this, are there areas in your life of neglect right now? You might be thinking, I don't have areas that I have authority over, and yet we're reminded to look at Bathsheba. Bathsheba has a main part in this story, and indeed God's overall plan, but she's not someone who seems to have much power or authority, but is used by God to bring his plan to fruition. All of us have a part to play in God's story. We've been entrusted by God to care for something or someone. Are you neglecting the task that God has put before you? Number two, in what are you trusting in? This chapter begs for us to trust in God rather than human kings and rulers. One helpful way of answering this for us and seeing what we trust in is to ask, where do we find our sense of hope or hopelessness? Human leaders all have weaknesses. King shows us this. They're all prone to fail from time to time. They will all get tired. 
And yet we often, I think in this day and age, place our hope in human leaders and simply pray that God would give us the leaders who could do what we need them to do. We place our hope in leaders rather than God. We should be people who pray for our leaders, but hope in God. I feel that we need to change our hope and put it in Jesus. No longer politicians, no longer the things of this world. If God can use Cyrus, who's the emperor over uh, the Persians, to help his people that are in exile, don't you think he could use the leaders in our country that you don't like? Good leaders won't solve the problem for a country and a nation that is spiritually depraved. Kings reminds us that no human leader is immune from weakness and, and they all have limitation. And it calls us to trust in God, not men. Who and in what are you trusting in? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you give us your word, that we can read 1 Kings and find encouragement, find encouragement that your hand is always at work, that you bring about things in this world and we can have confidence even when things seem dire. Lord, we thank you that you work to bring Solomon to the throne, that it is David and Solomon's heir, Jesus, that now sits on the eternal throne. And so, Lord, we thank you that we serve you, the eternal God, the God who never tires, the God who is never weak, the God who knows all, sees all, and has power over all. We rejoice that the schemes and the plans of man can never overcome you. No amount of power in this world stands a chance in your sight. And indeed, the powers of this world are just like Adonijah at the end of this chapter. In your presence, they are just pleading for mercy, clutching at the horns of the altar. And so, Lord, let us see the things of this world truly as powerless. Let them not hold any sway over us. Let us not put our hope in the things of this world or the people of this world, but, Lord, to put our hope in you and in you alone. Father, restore in us a right heart. Give us clarity of mind and help us to see you and behold you as the eternal and great King, our wonderful Deliverer. We ask that you would do this in the name of our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.